Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in creation, in your word, in your son. And you show us that you are worthy of all honor and glory. And thank you that even though we have all sinned and fall short of that glory, you made our way, the way, to be restored to you through Jesus. And so we are so thankful that you designed and carried out the plan of rescue for sinners like us to be able to be in a relationship with you now and forever, that we can draw near to you as our God and as our Father. We can come with confidence to the throne of grace. We can know that our destiny is secure forever. And all these blessings and gifts you have given us. And I pray for anyone who is here that has not come to know you yet. That even today, they're here or listening at home, you might convict them by the Holy Spirit and bring them to Jesus as the only Savior. Lord, as we open your word together now, would you draw near? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and that we would respond appropriately? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at some helpful instructions about prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and 7. Jesus encouraged us by giving us four reminders about God. He tells us our Father sees and hears us when we pray. Our Father already knows our needs before we pray. Our Father always answers our prayers according to what is ultimately best. And our Father only gives what is good to those who ask Him. In our text for today, Jesus gives us a basic model of prayer. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. So we walk through the phrases of what is usually called the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapter 6. And if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, um, the theme of the weekend retreat is Jesus on prayer. That's why we talked about prayer last week in Matthew 6 and 7 and again this morning. Um, a little bit of overlap, but uh, a little bit different as well. Um, I think, as we mentioned last week, we all could use some help when it comes to our prayer life. And so these texts and that book and just lots of other resources are available to help us uh, in praying So verse 9, the very first phrase says, pray then in this way, or pray like this. In other words, Jesus is not insisting that we recite the exact words of this prayer every time we pray. That could all too easily become the vain repetition that he cautions against in verse 7. So by saying pray in this way or pray in this manner, He's giving us a basic pattern for the content of prayer, an outline of the kinds of requests we will want to include when we pray. And then he says, Our Father who is in heaven. 
so we can address God Almighty, the creator of the universe, as our Father in heaven. And, um, does that incredible privilege still amaze us? Maybe it's worn off a little bit, but 1 John 3, 2 says, Behold, stop and look at this a minute. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we, people like us, should be called the children of God and such we are. Just think about it. We're God's family. We're God's children. We can draw near to God confident that we are his children and he is our father. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. Romans 8, 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Sam Storms wrote this. There is joy unspeakable in this truth. To know without the slightest tinge of doubt that the one into whose arms we rush is our Father. He in the crook of whose arm we repose is our Abba. No earthly father ever embraced his child with such affection and tenderness as does he who beckons us to come to his throne. Again, we need to clarify that not everyone has the right to call God Father, just using those words, do not necessarily mean there's a relationship. So many, many years ago, I was picking up one of our kids at the babysitter, and this two-year-old boy comes up to me, and for whatever unknown reason, says, Daddy. So did I pick him up and take him home with me? Of course not. There are exactly four people in this world who have the right to call me father. Only those who are really in my family have that kind of relationship. So who has the legitimate right to call God their father? Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 10. Remember, John starts with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word becomes flesh, dwells among us. So then verse 10 is talking about Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, talking about the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him, but... As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So notice that none of us start off in God's family. Only those who receive Jesus are given the right to become 
children of God. So that means there's a change of status or a change in relationship. You weren't before and you become a child of God. And if God is showing you you don't belong to his family, first acknowledge, I am not eligible to be in God's family. Listen to how Paul describes our fallen condition in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn to that passage. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So first of all, we were dead, which means we were separated from God, and we were completely unresponsive to God. And Paul says that was because of our trespasses or transgressions. So the idea of crossing over a line, God said, don't cross. For example, just out of the Ten Commandments, God said, here's some lines, no other gods before me, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness, no coveting. Can't cross those lines. We've all crossed them. And sins is the idea of falling short of what God requires. For example, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor the way we already love ourselves. So we've got trespasses and sins, and he talks about we willingly joined the world in its rebellion against God, and that rebellion was fueled by Satan, the prince of this world. We all followed our own fallen desires. We were all characterized by disobedience. That's what sons of disobedience means. It's sons characterized by disobedience. And we all were by nature, how we start, while we're born the first time, children of wrath. We fully deserve to be under God's righteous judgment because of our sin. So that's where we start. That's why we need Jesus. All of us are in that boat. And so we turn from sin, we turn from following the world, the flesh, and the devil. We turn from thinking we could somehow qualify ourselves to be part of God's family by something we could do. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not according to works of righteousness we have done. It's nothing we could contribute or offer or do, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so we trust Christ alone to do everything necessary to bring us into God's family. We believe his death on the cross is the only way the barrier of our sin could ever be removed. And we believe that his resurrection shows he's mighty to save all who receive him, to all who welcome and embrace him as the Lord and Savior that he is. So assuming you are in God's family because God has given you the grace to Come to Jesus and believe and receive him. After telling us the privilege of addressing God as our Father in heaven, the next three phrases are three requests or petitions about our Father. So back in Matthew 6, maybe you don't even have to look. Maybe you've already had this memorized. Uh, It's pretty common. But the first request is hallowed 
be your name. So God's name is shorthand for his revealed character. All that God has said about himself, all that he's made known about who he is and what he's like. And the word hallowed is not the most common English word, but we come across it occasionally. For example, next month is Halloween. See the word hallow right in that word? It originally was hallowed evening. It's the night before All Saints Day. It's a special night because there's a special day coming next. Or, if you've ever been to Gettysburg, that battlefield is sometimes called hallowed ground. In other words, it's not just an ordinary piece of land. It's special. There's something different about it than other ground. And so hallowed is simply the idea of holy or set apart in a class by itself, above and beyond all others. And we just need to clarify because sometimes there's confusion about this. This is not just a statement of fact about God saying you are holy, which is absolutely true. God reveals himself holy, holy, holy. All over the Bible, God is holy. That's not in question. But this is not a statement, God, you are holy. It is a request, your name be hallowed. It's an imperative verb asking God to do something, namely, cause your name to be known and honored as holy. May you be seen and glorified as the holy God that you are in my own life as well as by all other people. So compare the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. Or the prayer of Jesus in John twelve twenty eight: Father, glorify your name. May your name be given the honor and praise that is due the great and glorious God that you are. It's praying what we sang just before the sermon. Highest praises, honor, and glory be unto your name. So that's the first request. We want God's name to be honored as holy. The second request is your kingdom come. God is the rightful king of all people in the world. All people everywhere owe him their glad allegiance and their willing obedience. And yet everyone in the whole world is in rebellion against his rule. So the kingdom of God that you come across so much in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, but it's throughout the New Testament, is the reclaiming of rebels and bringing them into a right relationship with the king. 
God's king. We've said, no, thank you. I, I want to be king of my life. I don't want you as my king. And the kingdom of God is restoring that right relationship with the king, along with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go along with that relationship. And so we're asking, Father, starting with my own heart, May there be more and more glad submission to your authority as king. And would you deliver more and more people out of the kingdom of darkness that they would bow before you as their rightful king. Third petition, your will be done. Ever since Adam and Eve... All fallen humans have lived by the motto, my will be done. I decide what I want to do, and no one, including God, can tell me what I can and can't do. We are all deeply committed to self-determination. And this is a request asking God to work in my heart and the work in the hearts of others, to say along with Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. That we would obey your commands and instructions, that we would submit to your purposes in our life. Not just, I want my way, this is what I want. What do you want, Lord? May you're sick and you need healing. My will is get better. And I submit that saying, but it's not my will, it's your will be done. Maybe you have something else for me, as we saw last week. Remember, Paul wanted to be healed of this thorn, and God said, no, I have something better called my grace is sufficient for you. But So my will, not, not done, your will be done. Well, Jesus adds a phrase to describe how God's will is to be done. He says, on earth, like right here, this life, as or like it is done in heaven. So go to Psalm 103, verses 19 through 21. Psalm 103, beginning at 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, Mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. So that's a little picture of what's going on in heaven. The angels, the heavenly hosts are serving God and obeying God and carrying out his will. They're doing his will. And Jesus says, God's will, not just in heaven, but done on earth like that. Namely, immediately, without delay... Joyfully, without complaint, constantly, without interruption, and energetically, without half-heartedness. That's the level of God's will being done on earth that we're to pray for. Not just a little bit in our life, and or a little bit on the earth. Like full-scale, heavenly-like Submission and glad obedience to the will of God. So after three requests about our Father, there are three requests about our needs. 
So first we ask for our Father's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus taught this model prayer, the average person worked for a day, got paid a day's wages, and spent most of the day's income on a day's worth of food. It was a day-by-day existence. They would be very aware of daily need and the need for a daily provision of that need. But even though we have nice grocery stores and plenty of food in the refrigerator and freezer, we are still not self-sufficient. We are still dependent on our Father to give. As a gift of sheer grace, our food and all the other necessities of life. Let's go to Acts 17 for a moment. Acts 17. Beginning at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Our God is completely self-sufficient. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, including food and everything else you need to live, God gives that. It doesn't just happen by itself, and it doesn't happen because you made it happen. God gives it. Or think of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Can you think of anything? And Paul's next sentence is, and if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If it was a gift, why do you act like it wasn't a gift? So in Deuteronomy 8, God warns us against boasting, quote, that my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. In other words, I worked hard for my money. I go to work eight or ten hours a day, five or six days a week. I work hard. It's my strength. Power my hands. And so I pay for my stuff, including my groceries, with my cash. I did that. And God says, no. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. In other words, if you are able to get up tomorrow and you're strong enough to go to work and healthy enough to go to work, that's a gift God gave you. So give us this daily bread is acknowledging I am ultimately dependent on God Almighty for everything I have, including the ability to eat, 
or the ability to breathe or anything else I, that is necessary for life. And I'm asking him to provide all of that. Second need that's addressed, verse 12 back in Matthew 6. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he elaborates in verse 14 and 15, 4. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So even after we come to know Christ, we still sin in thought, word, deed, attitude, and motivation. We're still guilty of sins of omission, failing to do what we should do, as well as sins of commission, doing things we aren't supposed to do. And so we still need our Father's forgiveness on an ongoing basis. Go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, and we'll read 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So here's a recognition. We still sinned. If you say you don't, you're out of touch with reality and you're saying God doesn't know what's true. But most of us realize, yeah, I am still a sinner and I still need forgiveness. And then Jesus connects that request to the way we forgive others. And it shouldn't be necessary, but sometimes it's confusing. That does not mean we earn God's forgiveness based on forgiving people who have wronged us or hurt us. Because the Bible is very clear that forgiveness is a free gift of God's grace through the work of Christ on the cross, Jesus paying for our sins completely. So it's not the cross plus you forgive other people earns forgiveness. That's impossible. Rather, it's our willingness to forgive others is the evidence that we have experienced God's forgiveness. You might remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the man who owed just this incredible sum and is forgiven and then turns around and demands this fellow servant pay back a, a teeny amount compared to the huge amount and he doesn't forgive that man and and. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you want to turn to that, the, the conclusion of that parable is, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And the answer is, yes. If we've been shown mercy, we are to show mercy. If we're not willing to show mercy, it calls into question, have you ever experienced God's mercy? Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another 
How? Even as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You've been forgiven? Forgive each other. Or Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. In other words, no exceptions. Just as the Lord forgave you freely, fully, without bringing it up again, so also should you. And you might be saying, well, that's hard. And you're right. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, including forgive someone who's hurt you or wronged you or sinned against you. Can't. Not just willpower. And so we will need God to work in us, as it says in Philippians 2.13, both to will, to give us a sincere desire to forgive that person, and to do, to give us the actual enabling grace to be able to forgive That's how it's going to happen. (laughs) It's not going to be you. We're still dependent on God's grace to forgive and do everything else we're called to do in the Christian life. And having prayed for our Father's provision and pardon, we pray for our Father's protection. Back in Matthew 6, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And at first, that might sound a little confusing because you might know James 1.13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So a helpful way to resolve that is to see this phrase as something called alitotes, which I'm sure you all were thinking about anyway, right? So if you ask what that is, it's a statement that affirms something by negating the contrary. So for example, not a few people means a lot of people. No small problem means it's a big problem. When Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, about these things, it means I want you to know this. So it's taking something, you say it in a negative way, and it means the positive. So saying, lead me not in temptation, is asking God to protect me from temptation, protect me against temptation. This is Kevin DeYoung. At its most basic level, this sixth petition is a request for spiritual protection. Think of all the things we are expressing to God when we make this request. We are making known our hatred for sin and confessing our weakness to overcome it. We are counting on God to never leave us or forsake us. We are trusting in the power of the Spirit to be our strength and our shield. Our prayer is not for the courage to fight, but for our Heavenly Father to be our refuge, our rock, and our rescue. So, 
There's one example. You can fill in the blank on your own examples. But let's say you're prone to anger. So the first part of this prayer would be, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lord, you know I am weak in this area. I am not patient with my spouse and with my kids. Please don't let there be a situation today that stirs up my temper and that would prompt some kind of outburst of anger. And Lord, if that's not the plan for today, if this family member is going to do something that is irritating or upsetting, then please give me the grace not to react in the wrong way. Enable me to respond with patience and gentleness and not with harshness. Here's Matthew Henry. Lord, do not let Satan loose upon us. Chain up that roaring lion, for he is subtle and spiteful. Lord, do not leave us to ourselves, for we are very weak. Lord, do not lay stumbling blocks and snares before us, nor put us into circumstances that may be an occasion of falling. But deliver us from evil. From the evil one, the devil, the tempter, keep us that either we may not be assaulted by him or we may not be overcome by those assaults. So, Lord, first phrase is, well, I don't even want to be assaulted today, God. Could I just get through this day without having to deal with that? But if I am to be assaulted, Lord, deliver me from you so that I'm not overcome by that assault. Last week, there seemed to be agreement that we all could use some help when it comes to prayer. And one of the challenges, besides making the time to pray, which seems to be number one, is content. What should I pray about? And sometimes that's obvious. If there's some kind of crisis, some kind of urgent need, we cry out to God to intervene. But on an average day, on a pretty calm, quiet day, we might not be sure what to pray for. And so the Lord's Prayer gives us a basic outline of the kinds of requests to include in our prayers. And again, we're not saying you have to pray this prayer every time you pray. Jesus is not calling for that. I even think of Peter. He heard this prayer in Matthew 6, and a few chapters later, when he's drowning, he doesn't go through the Lord's Prayer. He says, Lord, save me. That's his prayer. So, so don't get locked in like, I have to pray this whole prayer every time I pray, or out, this outline every time I pray. We're, we're not saying you got to do it that way. We're saying, here's some things to include, and maybe you need a reminder, or we all need a reminder, about praying about God's name being honored. God's kingdom coming, more and more of its fullness. And God's will being done more and more in my own life and around me, the way it's done in heaven. And maybe we needed to be reminded about our needs for God's provision or his pardon or his protection. But whatever our situation, it's always appropriate 
to pray along the lines of this pattern that Jesus gave us. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you that you did not leave us on our own and just struggle on what to pray about, how to pray. Lord, you've given us this well-known prayer as well as other prayers recorded in the Bible, in the Psalms, or Paul's letters that we can learn from and grow in. But just think again that we can even talk to you, God, that you hear us, you care. Invite us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. You don't want us to be anxious about anything, but we can come with our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving and make our requests known to you. Thank you that you invite and encourage us to talk to you as our Father. And that we can come with any need, any situation, any problem, and you'll hear us. And you'll always give what is best. Pray again for anyone who's here who doesn't know you as their father. Not in your family because they're still a child of wrath, still a son of disobedience. Lord, that you would grant grace. Cause them to be born again into your family. Adopted into your family. And they too would have the privilege of calling on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.